Cam Curry was a high school junior when his father, the radio newsman, asked if he wanted to babysit for his boss at the radio station. Of course, he assumed it was to babysit the guy's children. In reality, he wanted him to babysit the Sunday morning God show. The radio station played the local church services from the previous week every Sunday morning, and no one wanted that job. It required him to place tape reels on a tape recorder and hit the start button on time. Pretty simple, pretty basic. It also required him to crack the microphone once an hour and announce the FCC's required station identification. He still clearly remembers the first words he muttered on American broadcast airwaves. This is KRLN, Canyon City, Colorado. The station with the news reputation. He immediately realized his chosen career. Today we're going to interview Kim Curry with a really exciting and interesting story of not only what happened in his career, but when he got a terrible diagnosis about his health. Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Grant. Kim Kid Curry has been a broadcaster for 33 years. In the intro to this show, I shared how his career was chosen for him. So welcome, Kim, and we want to hear that story. Carol, thank you very much for having me this morning. Uh, I've been looking forward to talking to you. So here's what you, what you actually told the right story. That was absolutely how it happened. My dad came home that one day and said, do you want to babysit kids? And I said, sure, figuring that's what it would be. But uh, needless to say, 33 years later, it was... Uh, a radio career. And uh, when I, after I left high school, I went to the University of Southern Colorado. At the time, it was called Southern Colorado State College in Pueblo, Colorado. And I spent two and a half years there studying broadcasting. And at the same time, I did a one day a week show on one of the two top 40 radio stations in Pueblo. Top 40, of course, is current music. We all know what that is. Um, so I, uh, w the day that I got hired, I was in the production room with the boss and the guy who was recording all of the drops. Now, you've heard major market radio and you've heard, you know, this is WABC New York. You've heard those guys with the big, deep voices. Well, every radio station has those guys. And he was in our studio the first day I got hired when I was in college at this part time for this top 40 station. And my boss turned to me and says, well, we need to make one for this guy because he's just starting but we have to change his name because we can't call him Kim 
Because back in the 70s, Carol, you know as well as I do, there were not very many guys named Kim in America. But it was fine because he he reached over and he grabbed a 45 single. Uh, the, little, the little little record we used to have with the circle in the middle. And he looked at it and he said, uh, we'll call this guy Gary Paxton. Well, the record he picked up was The Monster Mash by Bobby Boris Pickett. <laughs> I and remember. The, mon- <laughs> the Monster Mash was written by a guy by the name of Gary Paxton. So that's how I got my first radio name. I was Gary Paxton on that radio station. It was called 13K. So that's how I got my first radio name. After being uh, in college and working at that radio station for a couple of years, I started feeling my oats and I decided I would start applying for jobs around America because I thought, well, now I can go become a full-time DJ on a really big radio station. So I sent tapes around America and I was offered a part, a full-time job in Knoxville, Tennessee. Now, as I'm driving to Knoxville, Tennessee, I, I'm preparing for my first full-time radio thing, excited about the new staff I'm going to meet, can't wait to see the new radio station. And I, I was going to be on the radio at 10 o'clock at night. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to come up with a, a different name because back in the 70s, you had guys by the name of Wolfman Jack. You remember him? Uh-huh. There were uh, the Boogeyman, uh, Dr. Brock, the ugliest jock in rock. Uh, you know, everybody had funny names. So I wanted to come up with a strange name. So as I'm driving across the country, getting ready to drive into Knoxville, I thought I'd call myself Night Smoke because at 10 o'clock at night, you know what those kids are doing, Night Smoke. So I thought that was a cool radio name. I walked up to the radio station front door that day and I put my hand out to the receptionist lady behind the desk and I told her, I'm your new nighttime disc jockey, Night Smoke. Well, there was a guy standing behind her, a really big guy with a Hawaiian shirt on and curly hair. And he says, well, if it isn't Kid Curry. And I said, man, I don't like that. And the reason was, is because if you remember back in the 70s, there was a takeoff TV show called Alias Smith and Jones. It was a takeoff of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Well, Alias Smith and Jones, one of the characters was named Kid Curry. So there I was, Kid Curry. Uh, being my friends are making jokes all the time. Hey, Kid Curry. So I didn't like the name. So when he said, well, if it isn't Kid Curry, I said, I hate that name. My friends have been calling me that and I hate that name. And he said, well, then I won't sign your paycheck. And I said, oh, my goodness, Kid Curry, it is, which was a genius thing that I had no idea at that time was going to be the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Uh, my style of radio, because I was a little kid. That's why he thought kid, because my voice was very young. If if you think about the 70s, Carol, you and I are older than a lot of people. Um, They had disc jockeys that had very deep voices. It was very important in those days for announcers to have very deep voices. Well, I didn't have one. Uh, So I was named Kid Curry. And fortunately, uh, I was, there was only one Kid Curry on the radio in America for forever. I don't think there's ever been one since then. Huh. Because that, my name and my style was identified by Kid Curry, and nobody wanted to try to be me. So I was very, very lucky. So I'm, I'm in Knoxville for about six months, and I started feeling my oats again, thinking that I was getting pretty good after six months of full-time practice. So I sent air checks out again. Now, these air checks, this is how we applied for jobs. The things that DJs say is all you would put on your audition tape, all the music you'd cut out. So I'd send out these air checks across the country. Now, 
one night on my show in Knoxville, I, I had this idea. You know, there's a Peter Frampton song called Baby, I Love Your Way. And it starts off with applause in the beginning. And then he says, thank you. So that night on my radio show, as he is applauding, I heard the applause and I said, hey, Peter, your zipper's down. He said, thank you. So that was a funny thing I did as a radio uh. DJ. But that ended up on my tape, my audition tape. Well, there was a guy that was in Miami. Uh, he heard that and thought, that's different. This guy was thinking further than just time and temperature. And so through that series of strange circumstances, I arrived in Miami uh, and worked for a guy who at the time, Carol, you, I, I'm sorry if I get too deep here, but I'm hoping I'm telling a fairly cognizant story. Here. Absolutely. But if you remember back in the 70s, you and I only listened to, to music, the Beatles, Della Reese, uh, Martha and the Vandellas, the Supremes. We only heard them on AM radio. All the FM radio stations were meant for the rock and roll guys, the guys that would play a bunch of songs in a row mm -hmm. and then said, well, before that you heard and before that you heard. Right, and they right. Were like the hippies, right? Well, the broadcasting industry realized the quality of FM was way better than AM and that the major part of broadcast money was going to be made on the FM dial. So there came a time in America where, where top 40 radio shifted from AM radio over to the FM dial because it was a much clearer signal. It was in stereo uh, and it, it just sounded better. So that the first major radio battle at for between FM radio stations happened in Miami. Uh, when I was in college, I would be listening to these tapes of these radio stations around the country just to get an idea of, of, of what the major market DJs were supposed to sound like. It's how we kind of mimic them to get better. And I would hear New York and San Francisco. But one of the tapes I heard when I was in college was this FM radio battle in Miami. And it was unlike any other tape. There was something about these guys in Miami. You could tell that they had their flip-flops on. They were wearing Hawaiian shirts. The radio station that was the primary, the number one FM station in Miami at the time was called Y100. Now, they had an open purse, one of the first radio stations to ever give away a $50,000 cash prize. And they did it over and over again. And this was unlike anything we'd ever heard in radio. Well, the station I went to work for in Miami was the competitor to the guys with the big dollars. I went to work for 96X. My boss was Jerry Clifton. Now, because this was the first big major FM battle, you had two major program directors running these, these radio stations. Uh, Jerry was, was very eclectic. He had been out in San Francisco and out in San Diego and had done some time in New York and had been programmed some very major stations. It was very creative, was very good at combating radio stations that had lots of money. So you had Jerry Clifton going up against the monster Y100, which was run by Bill Tanner. Six months after I arrive in Miami, I'm doing my best, doing everything I can to have a great radio show. Uh, I, I, I was a real teenage DJ. The kids loved my voice. Part of my show at night I had this feature that happened in the last 10 minutes, so I'd called it bed check. I'd let kids call in and tell jokes about their friends at school or rip on a teacher or <laughs> maybe, maybe rip on their brother, and I'd let them do that, and I'd fire back funny comments. And then at the very end, I'd say, 
okay, that's it. Come get me, mother. I'm through. And that was the end of my radio okay. show. Okay. Which, as you remember, is the title of my memoir. Yes, yes. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But six months after I'm in Miami, Jerry Clifton had been connected to a contest on, on 96X back then that was an illegal contest. And unfortunately, was forced out of the radio station, forced mm. out of, of, of the station that I went to work for. So again, I start putting together these air checks to apply for jobs all around America. Now, because it was a battle, I mean, broadcasting is a battle. Radio ratings are a battle. Jerry Clifton had put it in my mind the whole time I was there that Y100 was the evil empire. And that we had to do everything we could to beat them. And it made me want to be a better disc jockey so I could beat their guy at night. So I did not like those guys at all. It never crossed my mind that I would ever go across the street. But one night as I'm applying for these jobs, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking Jerry Clifton's not here. I'm going to leave. So I get a phone call from Y100, the guy that was my competition. He called and I didn't even want to take the phone call. I thought, no, not this guy. He's a communist. I don't want to talk to him. Well, eventually, he, I picked up the phone, and he said that he was leaving to go to Boston and that Bill Tanner was so impressed with my show on 96X that he wanted me to come over to Y100. I had to make a decision. I didn't want to go, but I knew because I'd known the history of this radio station. It was the primary number one FM radio station in America. So why wouldn't I go over there? I just had to get over it. So these two guys that I've worked for, Bill Tanner, Jerry Clifton, become my mentors. And that's who my who wraps my career for the next 33 years. In time, I was in I was in Miami, uh, probably until around 1980. And Jerry Clifton hired me to go run one of his radio stations out in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, and then as I'm out in San Antonio, Texas, Bill Tanner goes up to Washington, D.C. And so he hires me to come up to Washington, D.C. Uh, and then about six months after me getting there, Bill decides he wants to come back to Miami. Well, I had just gotten to the Northeast. I wanted to stay in the area because it was new to me. So I decided to try to find a job, and I landed one at a station called B104 in Baltimore. Now, I've worked for Jerry Clifton, a legend, Bill Tanner, a legend. The guy I went to work for in Baltimore, his name is Steve Kingston. Now, Steve eventually became the program director of Z100 New York, the largest FM radio station, top 40 radio station in America. So I've been blessed to work with three of the geniuses of my business. That cred gave me a lot of things that I probably shouldn't have gotten. I mean, I, I was I was well educated and uh, got jobs I probably shouldn't have gotten. So eventually, um, Steve goes up to New York to run Z100. I decide it's time to get back in the sunshine. And I took a job to come back down to Miami. That was around 1987. I come in and out of Miami twice because I'm there for a couple of years and my father uh, ends up having both his legs amputated here in Colorado, which is where I'm at right now. He was in Canyon City still, and he had had a head-on accident with a uh, tractor trailer in the 70s that just damages his knees to no end. In fact, before they knew the flesh-eating disease, he got it. So he ended up having his, his, his legs amputated from the knees down. 
Uh, I took a sabbatical from Miami for a year to come back here to Colorado um, to, you know, open, you know, put ramps into his house and open up the doorways so my dad could get his wheelchair in. And at the time I was here in Pueblo for that one year, I worked for my college professor uh, because the guy that I was that I went to school that was my teacher when I went to college in the early 70s. Uh, was still in Pueblo running the number one country radio and oldies radio stations. And so he gave me a job to work in Pueblo uh, at KDZA uh, so I could kind of keep my fingers in the business while I was taking care of my father. But my father is a radio guy. He keeps saying, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be in big time radio. You've got to get back to work in Miami. Uh, and fortunately, the people in Miami had felt my loss. The ratings had suffered. And so they wanted to get me back in. And through a series of circumstances, I end up becoming the program director. So I got there as the young kid uh, in the 70s. And by this time, it's 1996. And now I'm the old guy and I'm in charge of the radio station. And the radio station for the next nine years has the most success it has ever had. It is still on the air. Uh, What's the name was, of that station again? It's, now it's called Power 96. Power 96, which if, if I'm not going to get just, I'm not even going to say it. Yes, Power 96. So I was fortunate enough to take over that radio station in 1996. I really appreciate it giving us the backstory because for one thing, you brought back so many memories. Oh my goodness, the songs. Yeah. And it, immediately, as I'm sure you are fully aware, when people hear a song from their past or even the name of a song from their past, it conjures up so many memories. Yes. And this, it's funny how music does that. Do you have any thoughts on that? You know, I... I, first of all, I, I, I grew up as a trumpet player in high school. I started playing the trumpet in fifth grade. I actually went to college as a music major. I had just started the radio thing and thought I was going to stay as a music major. So I've been in music my whole life. Uh, I was a trumpet player, man. And, oh, that's uh, right. Actually, I actually um, made it to Europe in an all-American high school band because I, I was fairly talented at it. Um, but so my interest in music has really kept me connected to all the songs I've played. Mm. I, 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 I am the guy you need next to you in the name that tune contest. In a matter of a couple of notes, I know exactly what we're talking about because oh remember all these songs I'm talking about. When I first got into Top 40 Radio, KC of the Sunshine Band, we're talking, uh, you know, the Beatles were still there. Um, the Eagles, uh, the very beginning of the Eagles. So, you know, all these songs are stuck in my head. And I always, I always make a joke that if I had a dime for every time I played that song, I'd be a millionaire. Because as a, as a DJ for four hours, you're on the radio, you might play a song. If it's a hit, you might play it every hour. So right. I know all of these songs. And uh, because I'm, I'm a music fan, I'm also, I also do pretty well in country music. And uh, I'm, I still, my daughter is 17 years old. I got four kids from 30 down to 17. So I'm still current. Um, I'm a Billie Eilish fan. This little mm. girl, Billie Eilish, is very talented. And her brother is an incredible musician. So uh, music still matters to me. And um, I, I, I have earworms every day. Earworms. I wake up to a different song. And sometimes I can't get them out of my head. So I have a go-to earworm song. It happens to all of us. We'll get a song stuck in our head. So what I do is I, have, I go back to Aretha Franklin, 
you make me feel like a... <laughs> for some reason that is my go-to when it gets the earworms out well a lot of those earworms are commercials too aren't they Oh, yes, ma'am. <laughs> well, I appreciate you, know, you sharing this backstory regarding no. your career. But there is a, a very serious shift to this. And we're going to take a short break. And then you're going to share that story, as I mentioned at the top of this show, how multiple cirrhosis affected your life. We'll be right back. Carol Graham would like to show you the path from misery to miraculous triumph in her fast-paced memoir, Battered Hope. She relates her determination to succeed as someone who experienced one horrendous nightmare after another. Gang raped and left for dead, loss of a child, husband falsely imprisoned, and cancer. Nothing could break her tenacity or faith. No matter what you face, heartache, loss, suffering or injustice, Carol will illustrate how she became a victor the same way you can. The secret is to never, ever give up hope. Order your copy at Amazon or batteredhope.blogspot.com. Thank you so much, Kim, for sharing what you have already. And now we're going to come to the part of the show where I believe many people in the audience will relate and that is when they receive or someone they love receives a diagnosis a health diagnosis that can be debilitating and totally change their life so pick up your story from how and when this happened i multiple sclerosis lingered in me my entire life i just didn't know what it was i mean i thought in San Antonio one time I was all tingly and my fingers were all crazy and they was curled up and I thought I'd been bitten by a fire ant. Um, one time I thought I'd been bitten, I've been stung by a killer bee. Uh, one time in particular, I was in Washington, D.C., as I told you earlier, and I told you about my bed check segment. Now, that was a little kid segment, okay? Um, but in Washington, D.C., it took a political turn. Strangely enough, I'd have uh, political party jokes be called in. And specifically one time, I started getting a call from this one guy, and he'd say, hey, it's me, Frank DeFramer, and I'm over here at the White House, and the president is listening to you right now doing bed check. And I'd go, ha, 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 and I'd move on, and I'd take the next call. I didn't think it was anything real. And then I'd get a call the next day on bed check. And he'd say, hey, it's me, Frank DeFramer. Mr. Reagan just left the building. He thought that last show was really funny. And I was like, <laughs> sure, sure. And I'd just go on. Well, this continued to happen. Now, because I recorded this, th th you know, I could take him offline and say, hey, who are you? Uh -huh, so uh -huh. one, day, one night I did. I'm like, come on, man. That's enough. Who is Frank DeFramer? And he says, well, I am I'm Frank and he told me his last name. I don't remember it because Frank DeFrame was what stuck. But he says, I'm the official person that takes care of the frames at the White House. Someone needs to do maintenance on them. And that's me. I'm Frank DeFramer. And so I was shocked. No I couldn't kidding. believe that I had a real connection. He said, and every time I'm telling you that the, the president was here, he was here. And I was stunned. But you know what? Think back. Reagan was a radio guy. And I had a pretty good mm -hmm. radio show. So, you know. It, it made sense. <laughs> so 
So then here we go on. A couple of years go by. I now leave Washington, D.C., and I'm in Baltimore. Uh, my girlfriend's grandmother comes to visit from Texas, and I say that I've got this friend at the White House. She says, you got to get me a tour. So I call, I call the White House out of nowhere, you know, and I really, again, didn't it was surprised me. He was a real guy. I called the White House and I said, excuse me, I need to speak with Frank DeFramer. And they're like, oh, sure, Frank, hang on. I was surprised. <laughs> he picks up the phone. I said, Frank, it's Kid Curry. He's a like, kid. How are you? Where are you? Because he, did, he didn't know where I'd landed after Washington, D.C. And so we strike up this conversation. I'm like, listen, my girlfriend's grandma wants to come over and take a tour. Can you please hook me up? He says, come on over. Whenever you're ready, I'll let them know that you're coming. Just tell them when you get here, you need to see Frank DeFramer. I'll tell them Kid Curry's coming because we all know who you are. <laughs> so, okay. Oh, that's funny. So I, you know, but now this is right after Reagan's assassination attempt. There is no change in security around the White House yet. So I get in my car from Baltimore, me and grandma and the girlfriend go driving around all around the White House two or three times. And there's this one road that looked to me like you could just go up right next to the to the door. And so I go up that door, uh, go up that road. And as I'm going up that road, um, needless to say, the Secret Service was unimpressed. Uh, everybody starts pulling out <laughs> their guns. They're coming at my car. And I didn't know that I was having a multiple sclerosis exacerbation. Stress kicks in exacerbations. Uh. By the time I got my car stopped, my shoulders were up to my neck. My hands were all curled. I could hardly stop the car. And when I, I went to open the door, I fell out of the car. And they're all yelling, freeze, freeze. And I'm yelling, it's me, Kid Curry. I'm here to see Frank DeFramer. And they're like, kid, can we get you a wheelchair? I'm like, oh, no. Get grandma the wheelchair. I'll be okay. It took me a few minutes for everything right. to calm down. Mm -hmm. So I had MS my whole life, didn't know it until the year, it, I, the year of the tsunami that we all saw on television in 2004. Remember, uh, it's been right. the first time th this was televised and we all saw it. And I happened to be home with my family, visiting my mother out here in Colorado. And it, it overwhelmed us. We were at my mother's house watching these things. And my mother didn't even know what the word tsunami meant. So it was devastating. And my mom, before I left, she says, there's something wrong with you. Your eye is drooping. You're not walking straight. Your hands look funny. And, and her, her concern really raised my wife's concern. So in 2005, around March, uh, I, I, my wife and I, um, she convinces me to find it. Actually, you know what I did is I went to my chiropractor first because I thought because it was my 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 gate, I thought she could pop my back and just put everything back into place. Mm -hmm. But it was mm -hmm. my chiropractor who said, you need to go see a neurologist because there's something really wrong with you. And so that started the testing for multiple sclerosis. It took about six weeks. My wife says it was two months. Uh, and then that's when my wife coined the phrase, that's when our snow globe got shook. Uh, I was at a corporate meeting over in Naples. Uh, I, it was five o'clock in the afternoon. All the corporate geniuses were there. I get a phone call on my phone. Uh, my doctor, I go to the, it's, I see it's her. I go to a room. I take the call and the doctor says, Mr. Curry, I need to see you on Monday. It's my evaluation. You are a real multiple sclerosis victim and we need to find out oh. what to do for you right now. 
And I went into the corporate office and <laughs> told the guys goodbye, packed up my stuff, got in my car. Now, Naples is across the Alligator Alley from Miami. So on that three-hour trip back to Miami, I was on the phone with my wife, and she's on the 2005 version of Google. I didn't know what MS was, neither did she. But by the time I finished my trip back home, I realized and I'd learned that that people can die from multiple sclerosis. So as you can tell that that weekend, uh, that was a Friday, and you can tell by the next morning, things were different in my house. Uh, and by Monday, uh, I went in uh, to my office and I, I told them that that was it, that um, my concern now was no longer the radio station. And it was obvious to me and it scared me because all I'd been concerned about was my radio career for 33 years. The only thing I thought of was my radio show or my radio station. And suddenly in a 72 hour period, the only thing I could think of was, I gotta find a place to go. I'm sick and I'm not, I need to figure out what to do. I had no idea. So we went in and resigned and a week later, the boss tried everything he could do to keep me on. And I said, no, I was gone. I had to go. And my wife and I decided we'd move back here to Colorado, uh, my hometown, Canyon City, figuring that if I needed any extra assistance, my friends would be around to help me. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really how all that happened. Uh, and I like my wife's, uh, she said, that's when our snow globe was shaken because everything just really went up in the air. Nobody knew where we were going to fall. We didn't know what we were going to do. And I'm sure there are people that are relating exactly to what you are saying. So we know we're running short on time and we do okay. want to talk about your books, of course, but maybe capsulize what happened in a few sentences regarding the time from your diagnosis to when they found something that could help you. It was eight years. Uh, I had real steady decline for eight years, 2005 till around 13 or so. Uh, and then my doctor decided there was there was no change. It was time to do something. Uh, so he changed. And the whole time, my, and my wife, you know, she affords me the best doctors, the best therapists, the best medicines. The whole time my doctor for those eight years was telling me I need to take vitamin D. It never really stuck. But when he decided that it was time to change the medicine, he was adamant. You've got to start taking vitamin D and now. And I changed my medicine and still waited six months because I just didn't think a vitamin was going to do it. I was a radio DJ. We made jokes about vitamin C on my radio show. My mom always says take vitamin C and then she sniffs and sneezes. So I've made jokes about vitamins. I just didn't think it would work. But um, I can tell you after six months of a new medicine and then six months of concentrated 5,000, 8,000 IUs of vitamin D every day after eight years my condition leveled off. Uh, it was noticeable to my wife and I that I wasn't getting worse. Uh, it surprised us. It took a couple of years to shake all that out because suddenly I wasn't really concerned about dying. It, it, it really gave us a chance to take a breath. It gave, my, it gave me a chance to find a new me and it gave my wife a chance to find a new her. Let me 
brag about her just quickly. Uh, we went out to Colorado and we came out here. We came out here to fix and flip houses. Uh, she didn't like the way the realtors were treating her. So she went and got a real estate license. A year after she got that, she was breaking per capita records in the state uh, in real estate. Uh, a couple of years after that, she becomes a real estate consultant. And today, uh, my wife is, doesn't sell houses anymore. She is a consultant. You can't even talk to my wife unless you sell at least 100 houses a year. <laughs> so she has, uh, I'm telling you, this changed. My wife is a superstar. Uh, and I used to think I was a high-paid dude, man. <laughs> I'm sorry. My wife puts me to shame. But then I had to come up with a new me. I have all this kid, this kid curry radio thing, this obsession I have with broadcasting. And because I was no longer sick, I could feel that I needed to do something else. Um, and then I had an incident happen that really changed everything for me. Uh, I had, when I left the business in 2005, I disappeared. When you're the program director of the number one radio station in Miami, Florida, and it was the most listened to radio station in the Southeast United States at the time, you're a pretty big deal. So when I disappeared, a lot of people didn't know. They did not know what happened. And I didn't communicate with anybody except this one guy. His name was Vince Pellegrino. He used to be the uh, owner and editor of the magazine called Street Information Network. It was a, a magazine, a promotion magazine for music and songs. And, and his birthday is on April 1st. Mine is April 20. So we each year I'd get a call from him on the, on the 20th and I'd call him on the 1st just to say happy birthday. Well, every year Vince had a big party for the people that, you know, you see the Grammys. Those guys get the Grammy Awards, but they wouldn't be getting those awards without their promoters who were getting the songs on the radio stations in America. Well, Vince did a yearly presentation where he gave awards to the guys who were the best promoters in the radio and music business. So it became a big deal. I never attended, but it became almost as important to the industry as the Grammys because the industry people were finally getting recognition. Well, I'm out, of, I'm out, what, almost, I don't know, 10 years or so. And I get a call from Vince and he says, I want you to come to New York. I want to give you a Lifetime Achievement Award at my next convention. Uh, so he flies me and my wife out to New York. He has this thing at B.B. King's uh, Blues Club. I, I get on stage and I see my entire radio career in front of me, 30 years of friends. The next morning, Vince comes to me and he says, you know what, man, I'm dying. The reason I have you out here is because I want you to wake up. I want you to do something. I want you to try to come back. And it really affected me. Vincent no was a very close friend of mine. And I did not, I, I knew he was sick. Everyone knew he was sick, but no one really told me. And so that morning he sat there and, and, and told me how sick he was and he encouraged me to do something. But, you know, radio is such, music is such that I was well gone. There's nothing I could do for anybody in music or radio. So I, I, I had to come up with a new me and I decided that I wanted to learn to write because I wanted to tell my story all the way to Vince Pellegrino pulling me up and saying, come on, man, shake yourself off. So I hired a writing coach, the lady who is the Northern Colorado Writers Association founder. I, I hired her. Uh, she taught me for six months. Actually, you know, she didn't even talk to me. She gave me books to read. She says, you need to read these books before I'm going to talk to you about how to write. Uh, 
So I read these books for six months and then I worked with her for six months. I'd write things and I'd send them to her. And you know how you get your, your paper back in uh -huh, high school with little uh -huh. red marks on it? Well, she'd do that. And then I did six months of research and then I wrote my memoir, Come Get Me Mother, I'm Through. I told the story of my career. I told the story of my diagnosis and what happened after that all the way to my friend, Vince Pellegrino. Uh, I, I was in the writing mode and I had a story that I wanted to write that my father and I kind of lived through. Uh, and so I continued writing and I wrote a short story about what happened to a small American town and its only radio station after President Reagan rescinded the Fairness Doctrine in 1987. That was the rule that required equal time for contrasting points of view. If somebody was on a radio station or a TV station and lied about a conspiracy theory, you, me, any American had the right to demand equal time to dispel that theory, to dispel that conspiracy, to dispel that lie. Well, once that rule is gone, lies are legal without debate. So that was what that short story was. And that's what brought me to my current situation, which is a book I just re I just finished. It's an 85,000-word novel. Uh, it's currently titled Bonnie's Law, The Return to Fairness, because I'm hoping some young lady reads my book and decides that we need to go back to the fairness doctrine because there's too much division made on that one decision alone in America. Wow. I am so glad you shared that because each one of those books, and when is the latest one going to be released? I'm meeting with some people tomorrow. I, I've, I self-publish, I self but okay. I'm, getting, I'm getting some very superior help this time on my third book because, like I said, this, as, as excited as you are about this, uh, there are a lot of people who are waiting to see this next book. So I'm, I'm getting some real professional help, and I'll let everyone know it should be in the next couple of months. So is there anything that you want to say as a word of encouragement to the audience, especially those who may be suffering, and what, what your attitude is from then to now, how that has changed? I feel multiple sclerosis. Uh, my diagnosis and everything I've been through has almost made me a better person. Um, you know, my wife, because of the nature of her job, she's a very positive person. There's a lot of positivity in my family, in my house. I wake up every day very pleased that I see the sunset, uh, the sunrise. Uh, I live my day all day long uh, smiling at people. Um, because I'm the guy in the wheelchair, I create the mood in the rooms that I'm in. So I'm mm -hmm. always saying hello to people. Uh, it was like when I, when I was Kid Curry, I'd walk into a room and people were like, oh, look, it's Kid Curry. Well, it was a mental thing for me after I got diagnosed and went, you know, from a cane to crutches to a wheelchair. Uh. People didn't want to be known next to me. So I had to, it was a mental thing. I had to come back and go, wait a minute. If I'm the guy in the wheelchair, I'm still Kid Curry. I create the mood because everybody's looking at me. Right. So I create the mood. I start the conversation. I smile at people. I say good morning. Kids are my favorite because I'm at their height. And kids, I love, kids love me. Uh, so I think positivity comes in our DNA. I believe it's within you. Once you find it and you realize it, we're all supposed to be good. We're all supposed to strive to be better. That's what this whole thing is all about. It's in your DNA. And so I'm, I'm a positive person. I, I'm, I, I don't get defeated. I thought I was going to be defeated. And for some reason, it didn't happen. So I'm taking every day 
and I'm making sure it's the best. And I want to encourage everybody to do the same because it's in your DNA to be good and to work hard. And attitude makes all the difference in the world. I don't care what the circumstances are. You hit it bang on. It ain't what happens to you. It's what you do about it. Absolutely. That's the message, the underlying message of this show. Thank you so much, Kim. This Carol, I, 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 do a, I do a lot of these things, and this may be my all-time favorite one. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. You're going to have to expound on that now. You got me curious. <laughs> Why? Because I allowed you to talk so much? <laughs> no, I think, I think because it, you're a natural. Some people, I don't really... It's it's tough to really, you know, when you're on the radio and you're talking into a microphone and you're supposed to collect thousands of listeners, it's tough to be able to 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 put your personality into oblivion and expect someone at the other end to accept it. There's something about you. It was very, very easy to discuss with you, discuss my situation with you. So there's something about you. That's all. Thank you so much. That's going to go in my warm, fuzzy file. <laughs> very good. <laughs> Well, again, I thank you, Kim Kid Curry. That's hard to say fast, isn't it? Kim Kid Curry. Yeah, don't. <laughs> I really thank you for sharing what you shared today, for the encouragement, for the backstory. That is so enlightening and brought back so many memories. So, again, thank you so much for being on Never Ever Give Up Hope. And we definitely are looking forward to your next book as well. My pleasure, Carol. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.